Leviticus chapter 19, verses 12 to 19, which is found on page 85 of the Black Bibles. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud your neighbour or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favouritism to the great, but judge your neighbour fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbour's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. And the next reading is taken from Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 42. And as I find it, I'll tell you, it's on page 734. Sorry, 735. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Please keep open that passage from Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be looking at a little more closely. Uh, If you were paying any vague attention during the kids' talk, you know that listening and listening to Jesus is a good thing. Uh, How about we pray that we might do that? Uh, Lord and Father, we thank you that you are a God who in your mercy speaks, that you don't leave us uh, to try and guess what you are like, but you reveal yourself. Uh, Father, we thank you that your word is powerful, 
uh, and that when you, by your spirit, apply it to our lives, it can bring real change. And so, Father, we ask that you would, uh, as we hear your word, you would be working that we might know you better, love you more, desire what you desire, and live to please you. Uh, Father, we ask that uh, our time of sitting underneath your word would be a time where you are glorified and honoured by the way that we react in our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's rare for Australians to ask the big questions of life. When it does happen, though, it's a great thing. A minister told me how he was preparing a couple for marriage and the potential groom asked him, so where's that bit in the Bible that tells me what I need to do to get to heaven? You know, that question's gold. Uh, You know, it's a question I don't think personally anyone's ever directly asked me. Like, I've chatted to people about, you know, eternal things, but I've never had someone come directly and ask me, you know, what, what do I need to do to get into heaven? And yet perhaps it's the most important question we'll ever need answered. In more reflective moments, uh, people might wonder what's more important. There's that kind of philosophical or pseudo-philosophical gem, you know, what's more important, the journey or the destination? Uh, the process or the result? Yeah, and as clever as it sounds to say things like the journey is the destination... Uh, I'd want to suggest that's not a satisfying response. Uh, If life is just temporary and temporal, then sure, the journey's where it's at. But if life is, as God says, eternal, then securing your destination is what gives significance to your life. It has to shape your life. Uh, There's a really beautiful expression that I've read on the the plaques. I don't know if you've ever wandered around and seen the plaques that we have on these walls commemorating people who used to be members of our church and uh, are no longer. Uh, It says this, entered life on this date. It's not talking about the day they were born, it's talking about the day they died. It's a beautiful little phrase, entered life on this date, uh, because it overturns the way I normally think. Yeah, I keep thinking and planning and securing for my existence here. What I should be planning and thinking about and securing is my life eternal. Because that's when life to the full actually begins. And for those of us here this morning, uh, I'm aware some of us are weighed down heavily by the turmoil of this world. Uh, And I hope then you can listen on relieved as we think about things beyond See, as that that prospective groom asked, where's that bit in the Bible that tells me what I need to do to get into heaven? Uh, Well, one spot is here, Luke chapter 10, uh, where Jesus deals with life and with love and with listening. So we meet Jesus, he's again on his path to glory, but it goes via the shame of the cross. Uh, He set his face towards Jerusalem, Uh, it was recorded in 951, In other words, he's got the plan, he's going to return to the Father, but it's going to be costly and painful, but also it will secure eternal life for those who are going to journey with him. Uh, And his journey so far hasn't been particularly subtle. He's developed a reputation fairly quickly as a radical teacher. So he called people to follow him. Uh, He demanded that therefore they go and proclaim his kingdom as their first priority. He, He actually commissioned certain people to go out and spread his arrival and the arrival of the kingdom through him. Uh, Jesus even made a claim. He has claimed to be the unique revelation of God. If you want to know the Father, you've got to come to him. So Luke 10, 22, just before where we read, 
All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. They're big claims, and so not surprisingly, the, the great minds of his day don't want to leave it unchallenged. So a lawyer stands up, um, as lawyers are wont to do, uh, to test him. You know, if Jesus is calling people, commissioning people, claiming to reveal God, you know, does he know how to secure a place at the resurrection? So verse 25, Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It seems a great question, doesn't it? But Jesus knows what he's doing, and he knows the answer is actually plainly obvious to anyone who had listened to what God had said in the past. And so he actually spins the spotlight around, verse 26. Um, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, oh, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. You've answered well, says Jesus. Go and do this and you will live. So what do you need to do to get into heaven? Love God with every ounce and love others in the same way that you treasure and pamper yourself. Eternal life is for those who love. And that's, that's actually obvious to anyone who had read what God had already said. But that's perhaps a little disturbing for some of us. Particularly, his, his reply sounds distinctly non-Protestant. Yeah, what, what do I mean by that? Uh, our Anglican Church is founded theologically on the truth that we're saved by grace alone, by Christ alone, by faith alone, not our works. Uh, it's the hallmark of all Protestant churches. It's what they're big about. And so when that minister that I mentioned earlier was asked that question, what do I need to do to uh, get to heaven? He didn't turn here. He went over to Romans and he explained how in Romans we've all sinned uh, and we're saved though freely by the gracious work of Christ and, and how Christ's death alone pays for, for every sin that's been committed, past, present and future. And, and, and you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, a good Protestant answer is nothing. Don't do anything. You just trust. It's, it's a gift. You can't do things to get gifts. You just receive. And, and it's true, and yet it's not Jesus' answer, is it? Uh, he actually affirms the answer the lawyer gave. Love God with every ounce and love other people like you treasure and pamper yourself. Life is for those who will love. And, and it leaves the lawyer there kind of picking at the intriguing edges of what has been said. You know, what does that look like? <laughs> More importantly, have I done enough? How much love? You know, so in verse 29, he, he follows with another question. Did you notice why he asks the second question? This time it's to justify himself. You know, perhaps he's feeling sheepish that his question in the first place, which seemed quite clever, has been shown to be a little bit obvious and simple. But I suspect he's actually asking, who is my neighbour, wondering, you know, have I done enough to get into heaven? You know, but behind the question is an assumption that if I know who my neighbour is, I know who my neighbour isn't, and so I know who I've got to love and who I can just not worry about, and I can know whether I'm in. So in Leviticus 19, uh, which Nat read to us first, uh, the assumption of the neighbour is who I'm tied to culturally. So Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. 
it assumes God calls his people to love the rest of his people. But the pedant would go, okay, how much of the rest of the people? You know, my family, my village, my city? Yeah, which people do I have to worry about loving if I'm going to get eternal life? Well, Jesus deals with the question again with an indirect answer. He tells a story that, that cuts to the heart of love. Uh, it's a cracking story, perhaps familiarity, at least with the, the concept of a good Samaritan means we overlook it a little, but as we retrace it, it's worth having in the back of your mind that a, that a Jew telling a, a positive story about a Samaritan is a little bit like a, a Serbian telling the story of the good Croat or the Tutsi telling the story of the good Hutu. So the story begins with a man in verse 30. But rather than leave it in the realm of fiction, Jesus puts this guy on a well-known road. Uh, he's travelling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Quite literally, it's a trip down, uh, about 3,500 feet drop over 17 miles uh, Josephus, who was a contemporary non-Christian uh, writer, he described the, the path as desolate and rocky. Uh, it was common for people to kind of weapon up as you went on this journey. Uh, on this particular road, there were lots of places where no one could hear you scream. Uh, and this man probably did. And he was left dying. Uh, the sense is not that, that he actually looked dead, but, but it was obvious to anyone who goes past, if he doesn't get help, he is dead. He can't help himself. And Jesus then introduced the priest. Now, don't boo. This guy is the paragon of Jewish piety. He's the, he's the cream of the crop. Uh, in verse 31, he makes clear he saw him. He saw the man. And he quickly crosses to the other side. Uh, next, there's a Levite. Uh, again, Levites are the, the same tribe as priests, but they weren't from Aaron's line, so they kind of were temple assistants rather than getting to do the real action. Still, very, very high up and respected. So, verse 32, again, he saw the man. Again, he crosses. Did you notice no motive is given? We don't get an insight into their thinking. We could guess, you know, that they, they might have been afraid, oh, it's a setup, he's faking it. There's robbers around the rock boat you know, over there. They're going to come and get me if I try and slow down. Or, or maybe they're going, oh, I don't want to be ceremonially unclean. I can't go down to work. I can't go to the temple if I touch a dead body. You know, we're, we're not told. Because that's the point. The motive's irrelevant. No matter how sensible, how rational their justification to keep away, they saw someone in need and they kept away. Doesn't matter why. And before we get on our high horse, <laughs> you know, we've all used that line, haven't we? None of my business. At least in our minds, maybe, you know, not out there. Uh, we've seen others in need, none of my business. That's why we confess, uh, when we confess our sins to God, we don't just confess the wrong that we've done, we also confess the good we failed to do. Now, humanity instinctively just kind of rejects and excludes those who aren't like us. You know, we see them and yet we choose to not see their need. Uh, at the extreme end, obviously, there's killing, there's segregation and apartheid. But, of course, we can do that a little more subtly than a, a Hutu massacring. We can simply create societies and suburbs where we just don't have to think about how our wealth is secured by keeping other people in poverty, people we don't see. Uh, one, one writer describes it as uh, the exclusion of abandonment. 
that just like this this priest and this Levite, we, we shut ourselves off from the claims of those people in the world who, who can't offer us a good we want or a service that we need. And so when we see the World Vision ads come on TV, we can switch the channel. And we can walk down George Street and uh, we see the beggar and yet we just kind of look up to where we're going so that we get to our building a little quicker. We've got to get the point, if we appreciate this story, that the Levite and the priest aren't the scum of society. They're actually really good, respectable people. And what is Jesus saying about life and love if this is what the cream do? Because Jesus left the story up in the air so far. Uh, the first time here, I'd be wondering, okay, so how's it going to end? Um, Jewish culture divided their society into to three groups. There were the priests, the Levites, and everyone else who was Jewish. And so was this a setup? We were going to see a good average Jew come and save the day and it'll be a nice bit of a, you know, a story to be an attack on the, the kind of hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership of the day. Or, or, or will Jesus finish it by the fact that actually a Jew will come along and he won't do anything either and, and he'll just have a go at everyone? For the problem is that none of us love. Or maybe he's going to send, you know, God would save the day. Maybe an angel is going to turn up and, and rescue the situation. Well, I want to say more distressing to the audience of the day is the way he does finish the story. Verse 33. Uh, but as a, a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. He, he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I'll re- reimburse you for any extra expense you have. You know, it's a Samaritan. Uh, Samaritans were a mongrel breed. They were the leftovers of northern Israel after they'd intermingled with pagans. It's the Serb to the Croat. It's the Tutsi to the Hutu. It's the least expected. And like the others, he saw, unlike the others, he took pity. Uh, the sense of taking pity there is, is being deeply moved to compassion. You know, we, we might speak about our hearts being deeply touched. The Jews would talk about gut-wrenching desire to actually show compassion for somebody. You move down deeply in your bowels, they'd talk about. It's, it's actually a description normally used of divine love, divine compassion, God's kind of love. This Samaritan loves like God. Uh, and so he treats the wounds, uh, he walks while the man's on his donkey, he takes him to an inn, leaves two, two days' wages there to cover the guy and says, whatever else, I'll pick up the bill. Jesus overturning who our obligation is to love. If you want eternal life, well, your neighbour knows no bounds. Love anyone you have opportunity to. You know, the, the tale Jesus tells uh, pushes us to take the victim's perspective. You know, we ask the question, who is my neighbour? Well, the time we should ask it is when we're in a position of need. So if I'm in need, I couldn't care less about the class or the colour or the wealth of the person who comes to help me. I just want help. And you take that answer and you use it when you're in the position to show love to others. Boundless love. Bishop John Kabungo Rukyahana, please correct me later, Uh, he fled his native Rwanda in 1962 uh, escaping anti-Tutsi rioting. He was a Tutsi. 
uh, in a refugee camp. He was there burning with bitterness. Uh, He became a Christian. He said this, The Lord met me and turned my desperation into hope. It came through the witness of other believers in the camp, not through desperation. Desperation can't save you. It can make you worse. So here's a guy, he met Jesus, came to trust him, and so then from that refugee camp, he, he, he actually went and rebuilt a new life in Uganda, uh, became a pastor, was planting churches. Um, after the genocide of the Tutsis in 1994, he felt he had to go back to Rwanda. And people challenged him, uh, again to quote him, they said to him, how, how dare you commit your family to go into such a place of violence? But he said the voice of God was clear as day and night. Someone had to go and preach about Jesus and peace. And so he moved to Rwanda, to a dangerous area. Um, His niece in 1997 was uh, brutalised and um, raped by a pack of uh, Hutu men and murdered. Uh, He went on to say, I had to repent of anger and bitterness in order to be able to preach forgiveness to prisoners. God doesn't want us to preach what we don't know. Remember Jesus on the cross. His nails were still in his hands and he called out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. If we are Christians, we don't wait for the pain to go away before we forgive. Forgiveness is hard and yet the cost of the cross is not meant to be easy. So now Bishop uh, Rukihana preaches not just to his Tutsi people in Rwanda but he goes and visits Hutu prisoners. And he preaches forgiveness and repentance. Here is a guy who understands loving your neighbour is loving anyone. The beautiful thing for us is we are well placed to love. Sydney is designed to have um, salt and pepper communities. So government housing is mixed in with outrageously well-off housing like in this area. Pray that that never ever stops. Because it gives us an opportunity to actually love neighbours who aren't like us, no matter which part of Kirribilli you're living in. Even better in a world that's getting smaller with technology, we can actually meet the needs of strangers who arrive indirectly on our doorstep. So um, earlier this week, the UNHCR volunteers set up for a day outside our church, right out the front of our gates. Um, it was terrific. I got to hear about refugee camps in, uh, set up in Chad, uh, to care for Sudanese refugees who are fleeing by the thousands. Um, and I got to help. It's great because I knew of a situation in Sudan but I had no idea how it helped. But, but here it was on my doorstep. Yeah, to, to love my neighbour is to love anyone. And that actually opens the door to everyone. But that's a little troublesome for us. You know, I, I can't love everyone. It's just not possible to get round to six billion people. And so some of us can end up loving no one. You know, the, the massive scope of opportunity can leave us compassion fatigued or, or paralysed into inaction. And we meet, we meet and pass more people in a week in the city uh, than people centuries ago did in a lifetime. You know, we're free to love anyone, but that anyone has to be someone. So, so we shouldn't fall into the trap of, of working so hard to implement programs that are good for people generally that we miss the fact that in sometimes loving people generally, we fail to love the person who's directly next to us and next to us and right in front of our face. That we that we go and leave the one before us to go and find the ninety-nine out there. We're called to love our neighbour, and now that might be anyone. It can't be everyone, 
but it must be someone. Our neighbour is someone. It's a person, they have a name, they probably have an address. You can't love everyone, but you can give yourself over to loving some people. People who are different to you. Uh, Our church is having a year of living generously. Uh, It might be a good start for you to love less people better. Love a few specific people who aren't just like you. Pick people who are different, uh, but love them in a lot of ways. Because Jesus' story actually pushes us further to assess our own character. In in the end, Jesus actually subverted the initial question about who my neighbour is. Did you notice that in verse 36? Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So who is my neighbour is actually not the right question because you can't put bounds on who you should love. The more important question, if you want to inherit eternal life, is am I a neighbour? Do I overflow in love like, like that Samaritan who is lavish in his provision? Is that me? Is that my character? Uh, Jeffrey Cousins, the the founder of the Starlight Foundation, tells this beautiful story of uh, one girl he met through the Starlight Foundation. Um, So like like all kids connected to it, um, she was dying and they were there to grant her um, a wish. Most kids asked to go to Disneyland or meet a celebrity. This particular girl asked to go shopping with her family. Uh, She asked that because she'd been so sick that she'd never been able to go shopping with her family. And so uh, they were taken, taken to the QVB, uh, kind of given no limits and, you know, go go wild, uh, allowed to buy whatever she wanted. And at the end of the day, she'd actually bought presents for all the members of her family, but nothing for herself. And uh, she reasoned they needed things she didn't. That's neighbourliness even just to her family. You know, and if, if we are to love, then we love like Christ did, you know, beyond, the fam- beyond the bounds of family and friendship. You want to inherit life? Love others. But don't do it apart from God. You don't get to heaven by great social action, doing all sorts of good things, all the while ignoring God because then you'd have forgotten the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with everything you have. That has to qualify the way we love others. Life is love, but life is also listening. Uh, That's the little story at the end, or the incident that happened to Jesus in verse 38. The incident at Mary and Martha's house, straight after that incident with that teacher, with that expert. So Jesus, uh, Luke sets it up for us in verse 38. We, we hear of a woman, just like Jesus tailored started with a man. And this woman, Martha, she's full of activity. She invites Jesus into a home in verse 38. She's busy serving in verse 40. She's a woman of loving action. Uh, and her sister Mary just sits around and does nothing. She just sits and listens to Jesus and doesn't worry about providing Jesus his needs. As we saw, beautifully acted. Uh, Martha gets annoyed comes in in verse 40. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work by myself? You tell her to help me. And Jesus gently corrects her. Because, well, Martha, you've done good, but Mary has chosen the necessary thing, the better thing. Mary chose to sit and devour the words of Jesus because there's no better meal. Uh, 
Martha is telling Jesus what he should say, but Mary is listening to whatever Jesus wishes to say. Yeah, love others, that's vital, but you know, we, we can't, as the, the story of the Samaritans says, we, we can't just sit around and enjoy reading the Bible with one another and have fun uh, in that way, just reflecting over and over again. We've got to act, but we can't just act. We do need to make time. If you're so busy, you've no time to listen to the word of God, you need to change things. You need to open it up on your own with God's people. Uh, even worse is the danger of Martha who, who starts telling Jesus what he should say. And we're going to make sure we don't slip into that. You know, it's tempting to, to adopt the ethics of the world at work because and point out that, you know, Jesus, if I went your way, I'm just not going to get ahead. Or it's tempting to adopt the values of our society so our children might get ahead when the values of Jesus might compromise their success in this world. And it's the question of destination again, isn't it? You know, what must you do to have eternal life? Love your neighbour. Listen to your God. For if you choose what's better, it will not be taken away from you. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we, we pray that we will be people who long for life eternal. We thank you for Jesus who trod that path and showed us the way. We pray that you would fill us with a love, uh, not just for ourselves but of you and all the people you have made. Uh, Father, make us careful listeners of your word this day and by your spirit write in our hearts that we might live uh, a life that is different from those who do not know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.